Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. In his recent expose, Make Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality, published by Repeater Books in 2019, Ronald Purser, PhD, takes a hard look at the mindfulness movement that has taken society by storm. Purser opens the book by questioning elements of the movement that have led to its success its scientific credibility, its secular facade, the prevailing discourse in society around stress, and other topics. Purser's main concern, however, is that mindfulness is being used to reinforce the capitalist system by absolving companies of any responsibility for its negative consequences, for example, work-related mental health problems, and shifting full responsibility onto the shoulders of the individual. Purser also points out that mindfulness is being used in ethically questionable ways in schools, the U.S. military, and national governments. Purser ends the book by discussing his vision of a revolutionary, socially-minded, collective-based form of mindfulness. Full of humor and eye-opening anecdotes, McMindfulness is a thought-provoking book that forces readers to look at mindfulness in a new light. Ron, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. So I'd like to begin by asking about your professional background and what motivated you to write this book? Well, uh, I've been a professor of management at San Francisco State University for about 24 years. And before that, I was at Loyola University of Chicago for about seven years. Um, so I think that has partly uh, a lot to do with why I wrote the book, being situated uh, in the field of management. I'll get to that in a minute. But um, I felt there was an urgent need uh, for a book that presented more explicitly uh, a critical account of the mindfulness movement, at least to balance out the, the overly positive presentation uh, in our uh, media representations uh, of mindfulness, popular self-help writing, and so forth. So I, I saw the book, uh, in a way, as kind of like a public intervention to uh, kind of systematically uh, question the uh, exaggerated claims, uh, the rhetoric, uh, also to expose the ways that mindfulness was uh, refashioned into an instrumental technique for personal gain. So that that was sort of the impetus there. Um, so in a way, I, I don't see the book as necessarily a critique of mindfulness itself, but more of an expose on how it became uh, commodified and then um, sold as uh, kind of a panacea or cure-all. Uh, so that that was pretty much my uh, motivation. And if you could present an overview of the book um, that would allow a reader to understand uh, what they can expect to find in their copy, what what would you say? Well, uh, the overview of the book is how mindfulness became a fashionable, marketable commodity and uh, sort of presented as a spiritual quick fix, hence the title Mick Mindfulness. 
so, I mean, there's several layers in the book. One is sort of the crass layer uh, of just pure uh, commodification of mindfulness in terms of how it's even used now to to sell uh, products. Of course, uh, the example I use in the book is uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken uses has a video about uh, its comfort zone, a pot pie-based meditation system. And then there are over 100,000 books on Amazon uh, with either the word mindfulness or mindfulness title. And then last time I Googled the mindfulness, there were like 210 million results. So uh, it's everywhere, uh, and it's being sold uh, in the marketplace like any other commodity, uh, almost like a brand or a, a marketing, a lifestyle. And so that's sort of the, the, the surface layer of it. But uh, the book kind of dives deeper into um, how mindfulness uh, became one of the most uh, desirable uh, techniques uh, to respond to anxieties of late capitalist society. Uh, and uh, so part of my analysis to, is to also bring in uh, a critique uh, of how it's been recontextualized in uh, Western consumer society, uh, kind of driven by a neo-political uh, uh, ethos, and how that has, uh, how mindfulness has served more of a, a ideological function uh, in society at large, and so that uh, then unfolds into looking at how mindfulness in various sectors has been uh, deployed, uh, whether it would be in corporations or public schools and politics uh, in the U.S. military. Um, so that's pretty much uh, an overview of the book. All right. And in your book, you say that you yourself are a longstanding Buddhist practitioner. You've presumably practiced some form of mindfulness uh, yourself for some time. And you also admit that uh, mindfulness might have its time and place outside Buddhist context, such as for medical or therapeutic purposes. So exactly what form of mindfulness are, do you take issue with in the book? Well, I take issue with mindfulness, uh, particularly how it's used uh, as a tool for placing the burden of social ills, uh, stress in our society, uh, and how it uh, responsibilizes individuals to take full responsibility uh, for their mental health, well-being. And um, so that's what I take issue with is the way that it's often uh, presented and framed uh, as an uh, individualized uh, technique, an individualistic technique. In many, in many cases, a do-it-yourself technique, which uh, doesn't necessarily have to rely on anyone except yourself to... Uh, manage your own uh, anxiety and stress and emotions. So in that sense, um, I, I really take more of a, an ideological uh, aim uh, at these practices because ideologies um, uh, are uh, in, in some ways quite uh, hard to see when we're immersed in them, and, but they, they're representations uh, of our social worlds, and, uh, and, and, but they can also misrepresent our social worlds. And so uh, mindfulness has become uh, a, a practice um, that uh, is uh, complicit in many ways with neoliberal values. And so if you look at the mainstream discourse um, uh, in mindfulness rhetoric, it, it, it's always the individual who has to adapt and has to cope. Um, you know, happiness is a skill. For example, happiness is 
a self-contained skill that we can uh, learn to exercise uh, our mental muscles, just like going to a gym, which are both incidentally very individualistic uh, activities. In a way, um, mindfulness has become part of, uh, of therapeutic cultures, too which um, are entangled in this notion of what uh, Nicholas Rose calls the side disciplines. And the side disciplines um, use institutional authority and expertise to uh, extend a government uh, in a way that uh, individuals become self-governing of their own behaviors. And, and so uh, mindfulness can be seen as a technology uh, of the self in terms of uh, Foucault's uh, understanding of it. And um, from that point of view, you can see why it's very, very uh, popular and appealing because it's, uh, it's uh, seen as very benign and very benevolent. And I'm not denying at all that people do get benefits from mindfulness. But um, I'm looking at the other side of the coin, um, which is – how uh, these tools uh, can serve uh, the interest of corporations and neoliberal uh, aims and political goals. So that's uh, kind of what I take issue with. All right. Just to follow up with that, you said you have a problem with the term the mindfulness revolution and call mindfulness the new capitalist spirituality. Uh, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, uh, yeah, I've always, uh, I've always uh, kind of chuckled when I when I heard the term revolution, mindfulness revolution, uh, because when you hear the term, you always think of, okay, what's, uh, what's been overturned here? Um, what's been radically changed? And um, if it is a revolution, it's an extremely conservative one um, because it's worked uh, cooperatively and collaboratively uh, within institutions by, uh, uh, by using uh, uh, the cultural capital of – it's an elite-led uh, movement in many ways, as uh, Jamie Kuczynski's, uh her book, uh, The Mindful Elite, has already documented that, that it's an elite movement that has been able to uh, gain access to major institutions such as schools and the military and corporations and hospitals and government agencies. Um, and, and, and so – it has not really offered any sort of uh, challenge uh, uh, to these uh, institutions that um, oftentimes are uh, quite dysfunctional, uh, quite uh, uh, wrought with uh, power uh, inequities and so forth. And so it's very apolitical in a way. It, kind of, uh, it, it avoids kind of uh, any kind of vision of the social good. Um, it's kind of a laissez-faire approach, you know. Let the market decide what's, uh, you know, what will uh, be valued. Uh, and so, from that point of view, it kind of follows the history of capitalist spiritualities, as uh, uh, Jeremy Carrot and Richard King have written in their book, Selling Spirituality. Um, so, there's a long tradition of, of colonization and commodification of Asian spiritualities that um, end up. Uh, uh, producing a highly individualistic uh, set of techniques that are uh, accommodating and accommodated to the dominant cultural values within these institutions. So from that point of view, this highly, individuali highly individualistic spirituality resembles in many ways uh, kind of the ideal neoliberal subject. And it functions then in a way that uh, kind of reorients the goals uh, to a highly individualistic realm in, in many ways. So that uh, is seen then as a, uh, as a tool 
that can help us cope uh, with uh, the anxieties of, uh, of capitalism. And it's so easily and has been so easily assimilated into the marketplace that, you know, that's why I started to question what, what revolution, what revolution are you talking about? I didn't see any revolution. I saw more a uh, kind of a quietist surrender to the status quo uh, of, of our major institutions. And then somewhere in the beginning of the book, I think around chapter two, you start using the term neoliberal mindfulness uh, and assert that there's a tight fit between the mindfulness movement and neoliberal ideology. I think some people might find this a little perplexing. You know, how can someone sitting quietly in the room practicing meditation be contributing to the, the reproduction of the neoliberal capitalist system? Well, uh, part of it is that when you instrumentalize and privatize a practice such as mindfulness, um, it forecloses other alternatives in terms of offering a radical critique of the causes and conditions of the social or origins of our suffering or the political economic origins of our suffering. So, um, you know, it basically is sending the message that it's the individual that has to, to learn how to adapt. Um, and so there's uh, very little attention paid than to collective action. So it's totally aligned in, in many ways with the neoliberal kind of uh, ethos. And what, what you hear uh, often is, uh, especially from mindfulness teachers, is that the only real change comes from within. So therefore, um, their theory of change is quite ineffectual when it comes to, if you really want a revolution, changing uh, social, political, cultural uh, structures uh, and, and systems. So the idea is that the, because you're placing the burden of change back on to the individual to harmoniously try to uh, accept and adapt uh, to external conditions. So it may, not, it may not look like there's any so-called harm being inflicted on people. Of course, there's not exactly harm being inflicted, but there is sort of a blind spot that's being cultivated. Uh, with these practices, um, because stress is not just in in the human body; it's also in the body politic. And so, uh, by uh, constantly encouraging people to go to turn inwards, kind of the inward turn, that to me is uh, you know uh, a political stance. It's uh, it's basically saying you know let's uh, let's let's just turn inward and uh, do the best we can to adapt to these conditions, which. Um, are often uh, the source of, of the stress to begin with. Speaking of stress, you argue that the way contemporary society understands the concept of stress is a little misguided and that this has contributed to the success of the mindfulness movement. Um, but everyone can give concrete examples of particularly stressful moments in their life, and we all recognize what the other person is referring to. So what's wrong with the way that we understand stress? Right. I sort of discovered this. Uh, I wasn't really planning on... Uh, diving into this area of research in the book, but just the, the more that I did, the more I realized that uh, the narrative, the dominant narrative of stress is one of uh, privatization. So the privatization of stress uh, is basically saying that, and, and John Kabat-Zinn actually, uh, I think, expresses this uh, in his uh, diagnosis of society, basically is saying that our cultural uh, malaise is uh, due to the fact that we're an ADD nation. That's what he uh, mentions in, in a couple of his writings. What that does then is it, it basically provides an, an analysis that the dominant view of stress is, is that we, we're, we're just simply making the wrong lifestyle choices. 
So it relegates it to an individual lifestyle problem rather than seeing stress as a much broader phenomena that's linked to social, political, and economic forces. And uh, Dana Becker, um, she uh, wrote a book, One Nation Under Stress, and she coins the term that this is the doctrine of stressism uh, when we see stress as, um, or we frame it uh, purely as a lifestyle choice issue or a or, or it's biological, uh, kind of like a biological reductionism um, that stress is all inside our head. So therefore, it's just a matter of autonomous individuals to 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 resolve it and to manage it. So um, my friend uh, Alec Caring Lobel, uh, he he refers to this as it's like an analogy he he uses is that uh, you know stress is like just having a common cold. You know. Uh, there's no cure for it. So, you know, you just have to manage the best you can when you have a, have a cold. So in a way that's sort of what's happening with, with the stress discourse. Um, but there's a long history behind it and how we got to where we are with that. Uh, and that's what I trace out in uh, chapter three in the, the, the chapter called the mantra of stress. And the, the unspoken assumption is um, you hear a trope among the mindfulness people that, um, our problem is that we've inherited this uh, outdated, uh, hardwired uh, biology uh, because uh, back in the day of uh, uh, when we were uh, hunter, hunter and gatherers and cavemen, uh, you know, we uh, we had to fight or flee if we were uh, hunting. So if we came across uh, a saber-toothed tiger, we had to, you know, run real quick and and go to our cave and and. Uh, chill out until our adrenaline uh, rush. Uh, but the problem is that we're inhabiting uh, the 21st century lifestyle, so we don't have that luxury. So the story goes, we accumulate stress, we become stressed out, which is a term that really didn't come into uh, uh, cultural parlance until the 1980s. But the unspoken assumption is that if we had only evolved further biologically, uh, in other words, if we didn't inher- inherit this outmoded fight flight system, we wouldn't have any stress or conflicts. Huh? So it's you know it basically is kind of sending the message that uh, you know it's us that have this flawed biology, and so we have to compensate for it. It's not that the modern capitalist economy is problematic; uh, n- we are the problem. And what that does is it naturalizes stress. It uh, uh, it takes our capitalist system as a given, which we must must adapt to. And uh, that's problematic uh, because it, it, it crowds out other explanatory narratives that could uh, uh, repoliticize stress as a, a political issue, which it is. And so by adopting um, sort of this uh, dominant discourse of stress, then you're also ideologically uh, aligning yourself with uh, basically the, the neoliberal agenda. And you, you you know you hear this in terms of the fear-based rhetoric that stress is an epidemic, it's omnipresent, you know, so it's up to us to to mindful up. Uh, seen as completely an individual level problem, um, and I think that's where uh, much of the self-help uh, literature uh, situates, uh, kind of adopts this kind of idea. It's not just mindfulness. There's there's many other self-help techniques that. Um, fall into the same camp here. The culture of self-improvement, self-optimization. Uh, they all sort of uh, basically have some cure on sale, but the cure is always uh, put back on the individual to, to adapt. 
Before we go any further, I'd like to stop for a moment and talk about the history of the mindfulness movement. What are its origins and where did it come from? Right. Well, that's a complex uh, question. There are many, many strands, many threads, uh, very intertwined. But what I tried to do is is to trace the emergence of MBSR, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which uh, John Kabat-Zinn started in 1979 when he was uh, at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. That actually started out as the stress reduction and relaxation program. That's what it was first called. And um, it was located in a university medical center. Um, and this was basically uh, the outcome of a vision that he had when he was on a Vipassana retreat, an insight meditation uh, society retreat in Bari. Uh, he had a vision that uh, he could adapt and, and uh, uh, modify these uh, meditative techniques, mindfulness techniques, uh, to be used to treat uh, people with chronic pain, uh, other types of psychosomatic symptoms. So that was the beginning of it, but um, it really has a much more uh, interesting history because he sort of built upon some of the work that was being done by uh, Herbert Benson. And Herbert Benson was a Harvard medical doctor who was uh, at Harvard studying at the time. He was into biofeedback, but um, uh, some of the uh, the adherents from Transcendental Meditation, TM, approached him, and, and he began to uh, do research on TM. And uh, like Kapitzin, he uh, basically uh, kind of universalized uh, the uh, capacity of the human body, uh, and that allowed him to uh, also um, claim there was no, no uh, connections to uh, Hinduism, uh, where TM came from. Um, that was sort of the beginning, but it goes further back than that, too, because the form of mindfulness uh, that we see in, in, in our culture right now really uh, can also be traced quite far back to uh, what Richard King calls the mindfulness-only school. Uh, and that was imported from the uh, Burmese and the Thai uh, revival movements uh, during the British Empire with uh, uh, the British Empire and Christian missionaries were uh, threatening the uh, the existence of Buddhism in in these countries during the occupation. So, people like uh, Lady uh, Sayadaw Mahasi Sayadaw in Burma, they led a large lay movement which opened up meditation to lay people. Uh, but by modernizing it, you know, this is a uh, Buddhist modernism. I'm sure you've had other guests that have gone into this in more depth, but. Uh, basically, the, the notion was that uh, we can strip away what we're seen as superstitious Asian cultural uh, baggage uh, and, and reframe mindfulness as a science of mind that uh, uh, would be completely compatible to Western sensibilities. So it's interesting that, uh, that this, uh, this revival movement, though, was quite political. It was a, it was a cultural defense against uh, the British but it had this uh, uh, side effect of, of promoting mindfulness and making it accessible to lay people. So when people like Jack Cornfield and uh, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein were uh, in Asia and Southeast Asia, they were learning this modernized uh, uh, form of, of Vipassana or insight meditation. And so that's sort of the strand uh, that um, led us to where we are today with clinical and therapeutic forms of mindfulness. So. Um, and without the fertile soil of Buddhist modernism, uh, this probably would have never taken root in the way it did. Um, 
because it offered itself up as um, something that was very uh, non-religious, uh, non-sectarian, and uh, universal, uh, a science of mind, something that uh, eventually would be uh, uh, taken up by uh, the scientific community to uh, actually legitimize it even further. And that's really when uh, mindfulness, uh, especially when the scientific studies uh, started to uh, be conducted, uh, and they kind of exponentially grew, that lended a, a tremendous amount of legitimacy to to uh, mindfulness in Western culture. And just to, to follow up on that, um, you know, Buddhism has always been adapted to each new culture that it's spread to. So what's wrong with rebranding and repackaging mindfulness for a new audience like it's being done in the West? Right. That is uh, absolutely a, a great question. And um, that's something you hear quite a bit that... Um, Buddhism has always changed as it, as it moved from one culture to the next. So, and and it's true. Uh, Buddhism, as it moved from India to China to Southeast Asia, it uh, cross fertilized. It uh, it adapted to uh, other religions, such as in China. It, it it mixed in with Taoism and Confucianism and so forth. But that was over a very long period of time. Um, like in China, it was like a six hundred year process, and there were translators. Uh, translating uh, Sanskrit into Chinese, and there was a you know very long process, in depth process of cultural and literary translation in pre modern times. But I think what um, I think what we're seeing here is something very different. Um, and Linda Human, a friend of mine, uh, actually wrote about this. I think, um, but we're we're in a different epoch in terms of all these different background assumptions and social imaginaries and. Western capitalist uh, postmodern culture, if you want to call it that, very different than pre-modern China or, or uh, pre-modern uh, Korea. Um, and um, so, as, as, as Buddhism has come to the modern capitalist West, it's very different. It's entered a secular age, uh, and the host cultures—I uh, like to call them host cultures—have uh, been primarily uh, medicine and psychology. Uh, where Buddhism has uh, sort of grafted itself into, as the dominant uh, discourses have been then shaped and defined by those two dominant uh, disciplines, psychology and medicine. That sort of shapes uh, these practices in ways um, which uh, is compatible with uh, our uh, popular uh, culture. Uh, But I think there's other things happening that we may not be aware of in terms of what we may be downplaying, what we may be missing in terms of other ways of knowing other modes of consciousness that don't necessarily conform to our Western beliefs and rationality. And so there's a a strong commitment implicit, I think, uh, to scientific materialism in uh, the mindfulness uh, uh, communities. That, um, may be compatible with modernism. True, it may and be also very compatible with our materialist worldview. But um, I think there's some transformative aspects of the tradition that, uh, because of, of the modernization, have been uh, sort of set aside. Um, and you see that more, uh, I think, with the Theravada, Vipassana, modern Vipassana, Neo-Vipassana, insight meditation, uh, strands than you do in Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism, although it's now uh, also moving into a modernizing and, and so forth, there's a lot in, in Tibetan Buddhism that 
would be very difficult to have dialogues with um, in terms of some of the assumptions that that they have within their traditions and some of their um, ways of knowing, which are, are not uh, conforming to Western presuppositions and so forth. That's a long-winded answer to that question. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, yeah, my, my next question is, you know, we've all seen footage uh, from conferences where many of the leaders in the mindfulness movement are on stage in a dialogue with, uh, you know, large Buddhist figures such as His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and Mathieu Ricard. But uh, so can we say that Buddhism and the mindfulness movement are two sides of the same coin, one religious, one secular, but the thing that they have in common being the Dharma? What do you mean by the Dharma? Because that's a, a term that's contested. It's still a religious term. If you use the word Dharma, you're, you're using a religious term. Um, I, you know, I, I think this is, goes to the rhetorical strategies which have focused on uh, the idea uh, that we, as Westerners, um, we know better because we're modern so that we can f- extract what is considered the essence of the Dharma. And this is a universalizing uh, uh, rhetorical strategy of universalization, which um, has uh, problems in terms of uh, the uh, assumptions that that are being made when you when you make that move, um, so that requires a lot of decontextualization, which assumes then that mindfulness is a standalone technique. Number one, it assumes it has a context context free essence. Number two, and that if we can extract that essence, then we can study it as if it is uh, something in a petri dish that is disconnected and disembedded from its context, from its from the life worlds in which we say mindfulness works. Works for whom and for what purpose and for what interest? Uh, this, these are questions which um, are often uh, downplayed in the mindfulness communities because uh, there's the belief that the individual is the sole nexus of meaning. Uh, and so these are very unex- these are not universal. Uh, these assumptions are anything but universal. It's sort of also, I think we are uh, vulnerable to as North Americans and as, as Americans, um, one of the most highly individualistic societies in the world. We have a glaring blind spot in terms of understanding how the role of culture and how it actually shapes our sense of self. And I think this kind of universalizing tendency to say that uh, we have access to the, the universal dharma in a way sort of opens up these practices to uh, all these market forces, all the uh, forces of individualism. And uh, But it's a, it's a narrative, I think, that somehow tries to present mindfulness as standing outside of history or standing outside of our social and historical context, which uh, is impossible, and um, but this is a key discursive uh, element of, of of when you when you privatize mindfulness um, and you turn it into a self help uh, uh, technique, uh, it, it then kind of uh, is seen as a standalone technique. Uh, uh, Barry Madgett, who wrote the book "What's Wrong with Mindfulness and What's Not." I really like his term. He calls it a for-gain approach to mindfulness. 
so we've um, we've kind of recontextualized mindfulness uh, within the domain of a, a utilitarian, pragmatic, uh, goal-driven uh, sort of uh, Western sensibilities, and that uh, uh, you know that's fine. But it you know I think what that does is it it. Uh, it uh, truncates uh, other uh, approaches to mindfulness or other ways of, uh, of, of using mindfulness that are not necessarily uh, focused on um, uh, put it in service of the ego, uh, in other words. So I think that's one of the trade-offs and one of the things that are, that's being lost in, in the modernization of mindfulness. So you say that the mindfulness movement is subtly propagating a sort of social amnesia. And I thought that was a really interesting term. Um, and I believe what you mean by that is it's um, by propagating exclusive awareness on present moment experience. Um, it prevents individuals from reflecting on the causes of and solutions for society's socioeconomic problems. But many people practice mindfulness in order to live a happier, or more peaceful life. You know, not everyone is interested in becoming a warrior for social and economic change. So, can you blame them for that? No, I wouldn't blame them, but I think we need to become more mindful uh, of of the dominant narrative, which um, basically, um, if you say that I'm stressed, so therefore I'll turn to an app or uh, meditate or or whatever, uh, even take a bubble bath. Uh, these can make you feel better. Uh, there's no doubt. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't take care of ourselves. Uh, self-care, uh, can be a radical, uh, political act, but these are very superficial remedies, uh, to these deep rooted structural problems, which, um, are causing, uh, people to turn to mindfulness in the first place. So, uh, I'm really more concerned about how mindfulness can be and has been uh, deployed uh, to help people uh, basically uh, tolerate and survive within exploitive systems rather than helping them to uh, collectively come together in a mindful way uh, through mindfulness programs, which uh, could help them to uh, exert their collective voice to challenge these structures of oppression or uh, injustices. Uh, now, uh, that won't be for everyone, uh, that's for sure. Uh, but if we're really going to claim that uh, this is a revolution, a mindfulness revolution, then we do need to move in that direction, more towards the collective uh, forms of mindfulness. I think one of the the greatest selling points of the mindfulness movements uh, is the fact that it is very scientifically based and that it does have a large body of research behind it. Uh, and I think a lot of people uh, really use this to, to convince others that it's, uh, it's an effective method to treat whatever element they're, uh, they're help, hoping to get help with. But is it actually as, uh, as well-grounded in science as we think it is? Well, yes and no. Um, the, the literature now that's coming out that's uh, much more critical of, of, of mindfulness studies, uh, meta there are many um, meta-analytic studies that have come out over the last three to five years, which have called into question uh, some of the, the claims uh, of significance. And uh, of course, the big one was the JAMA study, the Journal of the American uh, Medical Association that uh, was done at John Hopkins. That was the big one that in 2014 
basically, they uh, looked at over 18,000 studies, but only 47 of them met their uh, criteria for admission in their meta-analytic uh, statistical study. And, and once you narrowed it down to those 47, then um, the significance looked a lot more modest than, than uh, what was thought. Um, and there have been other studies uh, commissioned by uh, the NIH, National Institute of Health, as well. Uh, and, and one in particular that came out recently uh, was co-authored uh, by 15 uh, contemplative scientists uh, called Mind the Hype. Uh, and these are people who have been um, some of the most prominent researchers uh, in the mindfulness, scientific mindfulness community. Uh, coming out uh, on their own in in a very thorough article, actually, that uh, listed kind of a litany of, of methodological problems with these studies. But not just that, uh, because as the title suggests, Mind the Hype, that uh, the hype, uh, especially as it's communicated in the popular media, has outpaced the, the actual evidence. And and so they, they uh, own up to that uh, in this particular article, which is good. But I, I think you see other issues too. For example, one of the key ones that is often talked about is experimenter uh, allegiance. And experimenter allegiance is where a person running the uh, the active control group, the active uh, uh, experimental group, is also uh, someone who is uh, uh, either an advocate or of mindfulness, or, or they're or the key uh, the key author of the article. And when you factor that out, uh, the significance goes down considerably when you take out uh, the experimenter uh, allegiance effect. But you're right. Uh, branding mindfulness uh, with science has uh, been a, a tremendous boost to its popularity. And you see, uh, actually, this is something I wrote about earlier in, a, in another essay. It was called The Mindfulness's Truthiness Problem. So... It sounds very sciencey uh, in many ways. Uh, mindfulness feels very sciencey, but if you disentangle some of the research, you'll see that uh, uh, the the results are modest. Uh, they're not as uh, as uh, overblown as, as people have uh, communicated them, and I think that's partly due to uh, science communication itself. I find it fascinating that uh, some some very prominent contemplative uh, scientists have. Uh, made these really exaggerated claims in popular articles, such as the Harvard Business Review, for example. But then um, they're very m much more circumspect in in academic uh, writings. There's a lot of hedging and a, there's a lot of qualifications, and um, but there's quite a gap between the public the public uh, reporting of science and the actual uh, backstage. Uh, uh, material in, in academic journals is quite a gap between those two. On the other hand, um, you can also see a tremendous amount of funding that has increased uh, in mindfulness through uh, federal agencies and so forth. And at one time, I mentioned this, that uh, the transcendental meditation was sort of the golden child of, uh, of, uh, of scientific study. And uh, I think NIH uh, actually uh, funded over $23 million in research funds to study TM, but that fell out of favor around 2003. And then uh, mindfulness took up the slack, and there's like over $100 million that have been uh, uh, 
of, of funded research studies from the National Institute of Health. So there you go. Uh, I think that um, uh, it's uh, it's being uh, much more uh, closely scrutinized than it has before by uh, people doing mm-hmm. these uh, meta-analytic studies. Um, in your book, you primarily take a look at the mindfulness movement in the American context, um, not exclusively, though. And um, I have double nationality with the Netherlands and the U.S., and, and I currently live in Brussels, Belgium. And I can tell you that the mindfulness movement is in full swing here in Europe. There's you know all of these mindfulness consultancies that have popped up in, in the, the past decade or so that uh, teach mindfulness programs to other companies' employees. And a number of my own acquaintances and professional contacts have also participated in these mindfulness programs uh, that their company sponsored. Um, and generally, I, I think they react pretty positively to the experience. So um, where's the harm if a company wants to offer a mindfulness program to its employees as an extra benefit? Well, I think the harm uh, comes from placing the burden on the individual uh to uh, be fully responsible uh, for their own well-being in the corporate workplace uh, because that means that uh, the corporation or the company, whatever it, wherever it may be occurring, can continue to do what it, do, what it does. It could continue to require individuals to work 80-hour weeks. Uh, it could continue to um, basically exploit people in terms of uh, not offering them adequate uh, benefits, uh, time off, sick days, uh, or the fast pace of work that their people are being subjected to, unrealistic workloads. It, there's no harm. I mean, and this is what uh, Kevin Healy, a friend of mine, talks about, uh, that corporations, especially uh, you could say uh, corporations such as uh, Google and um fairly large corporations. You don't see mindfulness programs being offered uh, at McDonald's and people working at, uh, at low wages uh, or at Amazon warehouses. But in, in these larger corporations, uh, mindfulness programs uh, provide what Kevin Healy calls an integrity bubbles. And what he means by that, that uh, small groups of employees within the corporations will get some um, palliative uh, uh, benefits from mindfulness. In other words, they can um, de-stress, cope a little bit better with the demands of the workplace, uh, but continue to, to ignore um, and downplay the externalities that are being uh, uh, exported, the, the pollution, the digital pollution that's being exported by these companies. So it's kind of ironic that for take Google, for example, which has uh, been a subject of a lot of privacy violations and ethical issues that terms of privacy and many other uh, quite quite egregious violations, um, they can continue to, uh, Google engineers can continue to, through mindfulness, be better focused, better concentrated to uh, keep producing uh, these technologies of distraction and addiction. So it, yeah, it, it, there's no harm, but there is a harm uh, from, a, from a larger socio-political perspective. Because what that what we're doing is we're simply uh, reproducing capitalist relations. Uh, we're actually using mindfulness uh, as a way to maintain uh, existing power structures, existing uh, corporate uh, policies, and and um, so forth. So uh, there's actually no challenge at all uh, made whatsoever uh, in, in these programs. Um, 
they're very, very conservative. They're very uh, almost colluding uh, with uh, the interest of, of capital in many ways. And it downplays uh, the fact that uh, these workplace stressors that people are experiencing are not just due to people's lack of mindfulness or the, their inability to concentrate or that they're distracted. Uh, the, these workplace stressors are structural. Um, and this has been well documented by uh, people like Jeff, uh, Jeffrey, Professor Jeff Pfeffer at the Stanford Graduate Business School did a study uh, on workplace stressors, found that uh, for the large part, they're um, things like uh, lack of health insurance, uh, uh, unrealistic workloads, uh, bad bosses, um, uh, long work hours, uh, unrealistic uh, time demands, all kinds of things like this which, um, of course, aren't addressed by corporate mindfulness programs. So in a way, uh, what that does is it, it takes the ball off the corporation and puts it into the individual to, to cope. And that, to me, is uh, nothing new. Uh, we've seen that going all the way back to the 1930s and 1940s uh, with the human relations movement. Uh, Harvard uh, psychiatrist... Uh, uh, Elton Mayo uh, was working with Western Electric Plant on the west side of Chicago. And um, one of the interesting experiments that they, they did is they interviewed uh, almost all the employees at this particular manufacturing plant uh, and asked them, you know, what's bothering you? How do you feel? Uh, and employees felt that things, they felt better as a result of being listened to, but nothing in the workplace whatsoever uh, changed economically or materially, um, and and so you see a long history of uh, in 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 management that uh, we've always tried to to uh, change uh, the subjectivity of the worker uh, to align the employee and the worker uh, to the interest of organizational goals, and so. Back in, in Elton Mayo's time, uh, uh, many of the workers in these plants were women, and uh, he characterized them as being hysterical, uh, that they were uh, suffering from uh, hysteria and um, what he called mental reverie, like daydreaming. And now we would call that mind-wandering. So uh, when I saw these parallels, uh, I was just stunned because – it, to me, it just looks like the postmodern, um, postmodern version of the human relations movement, and 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 so it's kind of a deja vu to uh, come across the history and tie these two together. Even the most dedicated proponents of, of the mindfulness movement would admit that mindfulness has become a little trendy. Um, you see the term mindfulness being used as a buzzword in advertising from anything from toothpaste to cars. And just the other day, I went to a, a cafe for lunch here in the, the European quarter in Brussels. And the daily special was something called a mindful chicken sandwich. I have no idea what qualified it as mindful. Um, there's kind of a, a vaguely pseudo Asian pineapple sauce that it was served with. I guess maybe that's a mindful connection. But <laughs> anyway, the, the point is basically that you know, mindfulness sells and, and people are aware of that. Um, and of course, many companies have jumped on that opportunity to make a profit, um, offering anything from chicken sandwiches to in-company mindfulness programs and, and even mindfulness apps. Maybe some of these companies are just in it for the money, but at the end of the day, if they're filling a gap in the market and their product is helping their clients learn mindfulness and, and live a happier life, um, is there anything wrong with that? Well, it depends on where you stand. 
I stand in a place um, that may sound quite radical for someone who's a professor of management, but we have to take these corporations to account um, in terms of what they're not only doing uh, to employees. I mean, if you look at some of the latest surveys that have been released, um, the amount of stress that people feel right now is incredible. Uh, And to only uh, offer uh, these individualistic solutions and to uh, have these bad diagnoses saying that uh, the, the reason is because you're just not concentrating enough. You're not, uh, you don't really know how to focus. Uh, you don't know how to self-regulate. Uh, to me, uh, to me, that's politically, uh, it's a form of political, uh, spiritual bypassing. You know, it's a form of political bypassing. Um, and, uh, you know, we are at the juncture now in our uh, culture where uh, letting corporations run amok uh, is uh, something that's taking us over the precipice. Um, so I take a strong political stand in the book, and I'm not ashamed of that in terms of saying that let's let's stop being accomplices uh, to the elites in these corporations. Let's stop being corporate enablers. And that's, to me, I know it's quite harsh, but I think a lot of corporate mindfulness trainers are corporate enablers. They take their money from their corporate sponsors. They're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. In, in that respect, okay, uh, uh, you know, you can keep making money. That's fine. I, I, I guess that's why uh, my book has uh, uh, ruffled a few feathers in terms of um, calling into question some of, uh, of uh, these programs where a lot of people's livelihoods are at stake in terms of offering these programs and corporations. So. And there's a tremendous amount of money involved. Uh, the mindfulness industry is now estimated to be $1.1 billion. So if that's what mindfulness is, if it's just a commodity and it's just a um, temporary quick fix, uh, apply a Band-Aid and then get back into the war zone technique, um, I think we, I think we got a problem. And now, speaking of people at the top, uh, in the book, you, you definitely take many of the elites in the mindfulness movement to task, uh, particularly those in the Davos crowd and the big tech companies. But, you know, every every movement has its elite figure. So what do you see is especially problematic about those in the mindfulness movement? Well, um, I think it's it just goes to the fact that uh, from the beginning, this, this movement was an elite movement uh, led by um, upper middle class white males in particular who have the cultural capital to to go to Davos, um, to rub shoulders with uh, the masters of the universe. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of this, uh, I think, uh, magical thinking in a way that, uh, that if we just uh, train uh, these elites, uh, that there'll be a trickle-down effect. Uh, you know, the mindful leader uh, sort of approach will, will train these uh, CEOs and so forth. And then we can expect there'll be this uh, transformation. Uh, they'll then become uh, sort of corporate saviors uh, and uh, turn the corner, uh, kind of turn the corporation into the most humanistic, ecologically responsible company in the world. Um, these are the claims uh, that we hear a lot, you know, the Trojan horse, uh, uh, the myth of the Trojan horse. Um that if we just uh, sprinkle a few seeds of mindfulness into corporations, that over time we will see this social and political transformation. So 
At one time, Monsanto was the poster child for mindfulness. It was one of the first companies that got on board, and it was the CEO and the senior managers uh, that's, that uh, were uh, trained. Uh, a few scientists, some anecdotal uh, stories that well, a couple scientists uh, said, you know, maybe what we're doing is wrong. And But that was the extent of it. Um, we still have uh, Roundup with us uh, causing cancer. Uh, we have Bill George, who was the president of Medtronic's uh, company. Uh, then uh, I guess he uh, secured a position at the Harvard Business School as an executive in residence. He's been one of the most vocal people for spreading mindful leadership. And I raised this uh, in the book about uh, my friend David Loy, who wrote uh, Bill George an open letter about five or six years ago, because Bill George sits on the on the boards of Goldman Sachs and ExxonMobil and Novartis, which uh, I, I need not say any more about their uh, track records in, in, in terms of corporate social responsibility. Uh, and he wrote an open letter asking him, well, how does your mindfulness practice actually influence your decision-making and how you um, interact with your board members? And do you has your uh, mindfulness practice uh, infiltrated uh, the, asking these uh, hard ethical questions? Um, and he never responded to David Loy's letter. Um, and so I think we have to call these people out in some ways for uh, almost a, their hypocrisy. And so I am uh, definitely, um, I, I do take a, a political stand that uh, I don't think we should be uh, enabling the status quo of these companies, that, that we should, if we're going to do something, let's do something that really calls into question um, these toxic uh, policies and practices that are causing the amount of stress that people are experiencing. And uh, to say that it's going to trickle down is, uh, to me, uh, an empty promise. With this concept of trickle-down mindfulness, there's kind of this understanding or this assumption that within mindfulness is embedded an ethical system that will automatically be fulfilled if people were only more mindful. That seems a little bit like wishful thinking to me or a little bit like... Uh, yeah, I think that's very disputed. Um, I don't know there's some recent studies that are actually uh, questioning that 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 claim, that um, mindfulness in and of itself leads to pro-social behaviors or it leads to compassion. Uh, there's, there's numerous studies now that are uh, saying that it can even blunt your moral decision-making. Someone, I just saw that on Facebook, some, some article that came out. But yeah, I mean... The corporate context is very different than the monastic context, uh, and and I, I don't think that we appreciate that uh, that recontextualization is uh, something that uh, involves all sorts of uh, social forces, which uh, we presume are benevolent. Um, we presume that they're they're leading to the social good, and but I think that's uh, some assumptions that need to be questioned and interrogated in terms of also that meditation or mindfulness meditation in many ways can also be a form of spiritual bypassing, Uh, not just on an individual level, but also on a political and structural level, and particularly when we see it uh, being deployed in a corporation. Um, And uh, so I I think this should give us pause given just how market-friendly uh, mindfulness practices have become. I think that should give us pause in, in some ways to take a step back. 
and ask us uh, ask ourselves, so what's really going on? I I I, I actually see some parallels to uh, how pharmaceuticals uh, have, uh, pharmaceuticals have become so uh, prevalent. Uh, and as a form of spiritual bypassing, mindfulness can be used to uh, alleviate our pain or to try to dull the pain that we have or avoid it. And, you know, if we feel a little bit better, uh, that's 10% happier. You know, if we feel 10% happier, that's good enough. Uh, and I, I mentioned this later in the book that um, I think suffering, which is the first noble truth in, in the Buddhist path, and four noble truths, um, that suffering is often telling us that something is wrong and, and that the, it's there's signals that we could pay attention to. We could be mindful of our suffering and in ways that uh, actually don't privatize it as well. And, and so um, we're in such a complicated world now where um, the forces of social suffering, and I, I use the term social suffering because it's I'm trying to say that Look, it's not just uh, something that's privatized within individuals anymore. It's entangled. We have the complex orders of suffering that are entangled and hard to identify because uh, in a neoliberal order of society, um, we have these other levels of suffering. So first level suffering is basically what we have been familiar with, right? Uh, at the individual level, even in Buddhism, uh, Buddhism has been a path of individual salvation that we take full responsibility uh, for our own delusion and, and uh, uh, mental poisons and try to, to uh, liberate ourselves at an individual level. That's been pretty much the history of, of Western, uh, of Asian and Western Buddhism, and um, I think we're at a point now where that that approach uh, needs to be rewritten uh, in terms of, uh, like, with the Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi has been uh, talking quite a bit about this: is that we need kind of a global mindfulness or a civic mindfulness, which clearly comprehends clear comprehension, which is a, a one of the key factors of, of mindfulness. Uh, not just our individual mind streams, uh, the mental toxins and, and clashes within our individual mind streams, but also the sociopolitical uh, sources of suffering, which are entangled with our personal suffering. And, and that's, that's kind of a whole new uh, paradigm, I think, that we have to move away from seeing mindfulness strictly as a therapeutic uh, clinical uh, uh, modality, although that's part of it. That's definitely part of it but also conjoin that with a more collective or civic form of mindfulness, which can bring to bear our uh, wisdom and compassion uh, at a more social and political level, especially now that we're uh, facing up to uh, the impending uh, ecological uh, crisis that we're in. Um, this is really something I think by turning critique back outwards uh, rather than inwards, rather than an inward turn, we also need an outward turn. And, and if you actually look at mindfulness from a canonical perspective, it it also talked about mindfulness uh, uh, having uh, external focus. It's not just internal. And so I think that by uh, seeing how the dominant discourse of stress, which has been privatized, we've seen it as a strictly personal problem, uh, the more we can kind of shift out of that discourse, um, I think the better off we'll be uh, in terms of liberating mindfulness so they become a force for social and political change. 
which doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater per se. It's still uh, uh, we still need to take care of ourselves. Uh, self care is very important, but it's self care uh, in in community with others. And I think that one of the problems of Western Buddhism, and I've had this discussion with a few people recently, is there's um, kind of a privileging of silence in in many uh, domains, uh, whether it's on retreat and so forth. Of course, there's a place for that. It's definitely a place for that. But I think that uh, there's there's something lacking. Uh, I think now uh, in Buddhist communities, and, and and that lack has to do with um, finding ways to collectively come together more in dialogue to address uh, these more systemic and structural forces of injustice and exploitation. And so a lot of people think that, well, you know, Buddhism shouldn't be political, right? But I think there is a role uh, for the dharmic, the dharmic citizen, uh, and that's kind of uh, developing these civic virtues. So we think about virtues from an uh, let's say, from an Aristotelian perspective of uh, virtue ethics. But there's the idea, um, and at least the Greeks had this idea, that we are always political. We, we exist within a polis. We exist within a public space. And this is what neoliberalism has tried to destroy, is uh, the domain of public spaces, the domain of democratic dialogue. And... Uh, they had a word for people who weren't in the polis or people who uh, basically were apathetic. And uh, actually the, 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 the root word, uh, the, the root of idiot, uh, idios, was, came from the Greeks, someone who was sort of checked out of society and not taking care of, uh, of the public domain. Um, and so when mindfulness is reduced to a self-help technique, a do-it-yourself, standalone self-help technique. Then we have um, we have we're sort of putting aside other potentialities of mindfulness as a more civic, as a more communal, as a more um, transformative technique that requires uh, a lot more solidarity. And the solidarity can come by uh, suffering with others, which is actually one of the meanings of compassion. So I think that's a very different sort of view of mindfulness, different vision. And I'd like to, uh, to turn to one of the specific contexts in which mindfulness has been applied. Um, and you speak about this in your book a little bit. Um, and that's education. Uh, I know particularly in the U.S. There's, there's been a wide range of mindfulness initiatives uh, introduced in schools, anything from weekly lessons by an external teacher or... Uh, teachers incorporating mindfulness in their individual classrooms or even entire schools adopting mindfulness practices. And so far from what I hear, the anecdotal evidence seems positive. So does mindfulness have a place in our schools? Yeah, it's it's quite popular. Um, there's no doubt about it. I think the issue that I take uh, in the book with mindfulness in, in schools, again, is um, that most programs, uh, most programs that you see they don't really uh, take into account any kind of uh, critical inquiry into the social and economic context that are often uh, have a lot to do with the behavioral problems that um, in disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods and schools, poor academic performance, so on. Um, 
And so I, I take issue that there's almost a glaring absence of um, a liberating critical pedagogy that could be uh, integrated with uh, uh, mindfulness in school programs. It might kind of be a teachable moment where people could be uh, engaged, in, you know, actively engaged in in, in um, learning uh, critically uh, about their the context that they're in. And so, um, what you see primarily then is um, mindfulness programs, um, which um, are used uh, in such a way to help uh, children calm down, to manage, self-regulate uh, their anger. And but there's no real questioning of why uh, these people, why uh, children are feeling the way they're feeling in these in these contexts. So that's part of the problem that I, I see um, in in these in these programs. Um, the the other thing is that there, there is absolutely a paucity of research on mindfulness in, in, uh, for, for children. Talk about uh, the mindfulness uh, scientific uh, literature being embryonic. It's even more embryonic when it comes to children, and I, I think that's uh, important because. Um, a lot of mindfulness school programs are taught in uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods. Uh, children could be uh, have a history of trauma, and uh, I don't think that uh, mindful school teachers uh, are are trained uh, competently to deal with trauma. Although that's starting to change, uh, I had um, I had several people. There's a mindful uh, school program in Richmond, California. Uh, privately email me uh, letters, and these were letters uh, from the mindfulness teachers themselves. In other words, th- there, were, there was one mindfulness teacher in particular who was very experienced, had done a lot of training, and uh, she was uh, basically up in arms about how this particular uh, uh, service provider, this particular mindful school program was hiring uh, teachers and giving them like a four-hour training and then throwing them into the classroom. And um, they were actually uh, going to the school board and making it a public issue. So I think we have some issues there around, do we really know what we're doing uh, when we're operating with children um, in these, uh, in these uh, settings? And, you know, the other contested issue is something that uh, has been coming up for a number of years, not just with mindfulness, but with yoga. And um, one of my colleagues, of course, Candy uh, Gunther Brown, uh, just came out with a book called uh, Debating Mindfulness in Yoga in Public Schools. She's much more of an expert than I am on on, on these legal issues. But there have been some legal challenges uh, to mindful school programs uh, particularly the one, uh, I think it was in Massachusetts, was the Commer Choice Program, uh, actually was uh, uh, a target uh, by the National Center for Law and Policy, which represents uh, evangelical Christians, of course, in litigation. Um, but, um, you know, that's a whole other area, I think, that uh, is uh, quite contested. There are, uh, if you look at some of the popular mindfulness programs in schools, uh, they they are using uh, artifacts that look very Asian, uh, you know, Tibetan bells and so forth. And of course, you could argue whether that's secular or religious. That's a kind of the binary, which is uh, quite permeable depending on where you stand and who you talk to. But I think it is, uh, 
uh, an area that my colleague David Forbes has spent most of his uh, 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 last 10 to 15 years trying to develop uh, a different approach to mindfulness in schools, one that is much more critical uh, and watch one which is much more integrative. Uh, so it integrates critical pedagogies with mindfulness uh, uh, therapeutic uh, uh, techniques. I have heard good news uh, and good uh, reports about uh, what's going on in the New York City schools, that they are one of the few programs that have consciously tried to integrate critical uh, critical peg- pedagogies with uh, uh, mindfulness uh, uh, programs. So I, I think we're starting to see some movement in that direction. And I think the, the ethics behind introducing mindfulness programs to schools is made only that much more complicated by the fact that, uh, you know, certain actors within the mindfulness movement like to kind of have it both ways. They, they like to present a secular front, but, you know, often behind closed doors or with their own audiences, they're often using uh, rather, you know, Buddhist jargon or speaking of, of the Dharma or overtly religious uh, concepts. Um, now, certainly I, I don't think this is the case with with all of the organizations who uh, are introducing programs into schools, but I think if there's um, a lack of clarity around you know the origins and it's often covered up, then you're certainly going to raise questions in parents' heads about what their children are actually engaging in and if they actually want them to be engaging in these practices. Right. I mean, it, it's not rocket science. Anyone can Google the word mindfulness and eventually see that it, it has a history tied to Buddhist traditions. Um, so that's uh, kind of out in plain day, plain daylight, I think. And and so, yeah, you, you do see uh, some parents uh, saying, well, you know, uh, I'm not so sure about this. Um, and rightly so, I think. Um, uh but this is uh, what uh, I refer to as, as camouflage, uh, the, the idea that uh, uh, you, you turn on uh, the, or the Buddhist on and off position of branding. Uh, uh, you switch uh, the Buddhist branding on and off depending on, on who you're talking to, what audience you're, what, constituent, what constituency you're, 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 you're talking to. And so if, you're, if you are talking to school administrators or you are talking to federal uh, funding agencies, you're definitely going to turn the Buddhist switch off completely. But if you're um, at a conference such as Wisdom 2.0 or the Mind and Life Institute, or you're uh, you know talking to people who you know are kind of sympathetic, uh, then you turn the Buddhist switch on um, and say uh, things that how you're teaching the Dharma. Uh, uh, you're teaching the Dharma, but the people that we're teaching teaching it to don't know that we're teaching the Dharma. And I've I've actually heard people say this um, quite explicitly. Uh, so I think that raises some ethical issues. Um, if you really think that you're uh, offering stealth Buddhism or some sort of camouflaged form of Buddhism, I, I think that's problematic. Yeah, when, an, another area that I think is uh, problematic that you introduce in your book, um, you know, I've been active with mindfulness <clears throat> within both Buddhist and academic contexts for a number of years now. And I think listeners who follow me as a host on the, the New Books Network probably 
won't be too surprised by that. I think they could probably see a, a recurring theme in the authors and books that I've uh, invited to be on the podcast. Uh, but, you know, so over the years, I could tell that mindfulness was obviously becoming increasingly mainstream in society. Um, but I never really stepped out of my own areas of interest to look at what was happening in, in the broader society. So one of the chapters in your book that came as a huge surprise to me was chapter 12, entitled Mindful Warriors, in which you explain how mindfulness techniques are being adapted for uh, military training in the U.S., now, maybe there is some way that this might be a benefit to soldiers who are dealing with, you know, just huge levels of stress on the field or, or those who are suffering from PTSD back home. But this one chapter alone really jumped out at me as a warning about the potential of mindfulness to be used in truly nefarious and unethical ways. Um, and I think, you know, obviously those familiar with Buddhist history might not be so shocked um, as there are a number of historical contemporary examples of where the, the, the Dharma has been weaponized, such as in uh, World War II Japan and so forth. And that was for a specifically uh, militaristic purpose. But I think um, this one chapter and this one context really points to the fact that mindfulness movement has truly reached every corner of society and there's no real oversight as to how it's being used. Um, would you like to comment a little on this point? Right. When I first stumbled upon uh, how mindfulness was being used in the military, I I was kind of shocked. And this is uh, a few years back when I first um, when it first caught my attention, and I thought this is really strange because um, the advocates, many of the advocates who are um, you know somewhat involved in the U.S. military uh, initiative with mindfulness, say that they're teaching the Dharma, and I'm, I'm going, well, if you're teaching the Dharma. Doesn't that mean you know, that we uh, should have compassion even towards our enemies? Do we do we really in, engage in violence if we're teaching the Dharma? So that that made me really kind of think through just how kind of distorted uh, and perverted these practices can become. And 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 again, that's what happens when you you strip them uh, completely, decontextualize them, instrumentalize them, turn it into basically a concentration technique. That is, uh, uh, you know, I, I really don't even think what they're teaching uh, uh, military uh, infantrymen, um, uh, I don't really even think they're teaching them mindfulness. They're teaching them some form of attention enhancement training. But nevertheless, um, I took issue with how uh, mindfulness, these mindfulness programs were being used for pre-combat deployment training. That is before soldiers actually uh, went to Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, I have tremendous compassion for people coming back from the war. They shouldn't have been there to begin with that are suffering from PTSD, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about programs that are uh, designed, uh, and this is the language they use, uh, to optimize warrior performance, to enhance uh, cognitive uh, uh, capabilities, uh, basically to uh, increase uh, uh working memory and uh, all these kind of cognitive functions in the service of warrior performance. And that translates to killing. Now, the argument, the argument that you will hear is that, well, we can prevent Marines from accidentally um, uh, kind of uh, uh, shooting a child because they'll have better self-regulation. And that's great. I mean, there's no doubt that of course, we could save one child's life. That's well worth it. But that takes the picture off the larger issues of ethics and how we're using what uh, supposedly is something 
that comes from uh, the Buddhist uh, tradition, how we have, uh, as you said, weaponized it. And yeah, I also talk about how Buddhists are not angels in this because that's exactly what happened uh, in World War II. Uh, with the Soto and Rinzai sects of Japanese Buddhism uh, m- during Japanese military imperialism. So it's happened before, and that's when uh, basically you take bare attention or concentration, with, well, in this case they called it samadhi power, and you distort and you pervert uh, the, the teachings. And you saw many Zen priests uh, do exactly that in terms of uh, lifting the prohibition on on killing and saying basically, no, you're not actually killing someone because uh, you're actually uh, you're actually um, showing uh, uh, this kind of deep uh, experience of emptiness. So uh, that you're, when you raise the sword, you're not really actually killing someone. It's actually uh, an expression of compassion. It's a way to repay your debt or gratitude to the emperor. Um, and so Japanese warriors were actually portrayed as bodhisattvas that were fearless, you know. And, and that to me is, is insane in a way. It's, it's an insane perversion. A very extreme example of that. But I think you see a, a continuum of this kind of um, way of decontextualizing and, and de-ethicizing uh, these practices. And one of the reasons is, is we've begun to see mindfulness as a state, a state of mind which is purely a physiological uh, state of mind, which... Um, produces a, a certain sort of mental state. And so that completely takes it out of the realm of politics, takes it out of the realm of ethics, and puts it into uh, the realm of technique. When you have a technique, you can separate it from its from the context of nonviolence or to, from the context of ethics. And that's what's happened in, in the military. You discuss how mindfulness has been introduced in in the U.S. Congress as well as in in Westminster in the U.K. Um, I think this is a pretty interesting chapter. Um, You're doubtful that politicians practicing or promoting mindfulness will result in a kinder politics or better social outcomes. Why not? Well, yeah, I I talk about uh, mindful politics. Um, I take the case of uh, Congressman uh, Tim Ryan, who wrote a book, A Mindful Nation, who uh, basically sees himself, I saw recently an article, as the Zen president. He wants to be the Zen president. Um, but it, if you look at the book and you read it closely, it's an extremely conserv- conservative book, and it's almost a, right out of the neoliberal playbook, in my opinion. Um, he's, he's doing, actually, uh, the self-help rhetoric is making individuals responsible for their own welfare. Um, there's nothing you know radical in this book whatsoever. And the idea is that I, I refer to it as the as a politics of depth. In other words, what Ryan thinks is that we can solve all our political problems by going a little deeper. By by practicing mindfulness, we'll be a little nicer, a little, a little more compassionate, and we can even work better with Trump. He actually says that. And but um, I have my doubts about that. Uh, again, it's a therapy. It's a therapeutic way of uh, reducing politics to therapy. And it's basically kind of a psychologizing of, of these problems, reframing these problems as, 
you know, we're not mindful enough. And if we can all just get along, uh, we just be a little more mindful. We can all get along a little bit better. So it, uh, it, you know, Ryan comes from one of the most depressed, deindustrialized regions in the United States, where it's um, Youngstown, Ohio, which was, of course, one of the centers for the steel industry. And um, it, it almost looks like a war zone now. And uh, he, he basically makes these um, claims that uh, we can make um, America mindful again, in my opinion. You know, like we could reclaim our American values by practicing mindfulness. But there are some political scientists that uh, actually call that into question. Uh, Matthew Moore, who is, uh, uh, actually has written a lot about politics and Buddhism, he argues that uh, mindfulness practice may actually harden our opinions, actually. <laughs> It may uh, actually make us more attached to the existing opinions that we have. So I'm I'm finding it quite kind of uh, hard to to stomach uh, Ryan's proposals about going a little deeper. And then, of course, in the United Kingdom, um, the United Kingdom, the Mindfulness uh, Nation Initiative is is has been quite popular in terms. I think 200 of the MPs have have gone through uh, some sort of mindfulness program. It's been a focus of a lot of media t- attention with uh, the report that came out, uh, I think it was back in 2015, the all mindfulness, uh, all party parliamentary group, uh, basically, uh, again, what they're advocating uh, is um, to make mindfulness more accessible in, in all public sectors and including the private workplace. And that the real issue, that the only issue we have is that we have to train uh, and get uh, adequate funding to train uh, mindfulness teachers so that they can be deployed in public schools, in the workplace, and in healthcare system. Uh, But again, they adhere exactly to the same sort of uh, privatized notion of mindfulness uh, that is uh, uh, prevalent. Now, one of the things I heard, I just came back from the United Kingdom actually a couple of weeks ago. And I was talking at Cardiff University, and uh, a woman in the audience uh, told me a story that she said that she had been suffering from, I believe it was anorexia or some some something like that, some sort of eating disorder, and um, uh, she really wanted to get uh, adequate mental health treatment for this. And uh, I guess her general practitioner said, well, you can't really get access to that healthcare until you take this mindfulness course. Um, and it was almost like completely contraindicated for what um, she was suffering from in terms of focusing on body sensations and everything, the body scan uh, practice. And yeah, that really kind of surprised me that that it's a prerequisite in some uh, healthcare sectors within the United Kingdom that you have to in order to access uh, the kind of mental health care that you desire, you first have to try to take a mindfulness course of some kind. I found that quite stunning. I'd like to end our discussion with a simple question. What's the solution? Hmm. What is the solution? Well, I don't think there's one solution. First, I think we have to simply uh, accept the fact that mindfulness, uh, the mindfulness-only technique uh, is insufficient to respond to the type of suffering that we're experiencing today in this society that we're living in. It's uh, it's a one step in the right direction, but there are a lot more steps to go. 
by not looking at the social determinants of, of mental health, for example, which is now becoming much more uh, legitimate. Uh, the World Health Organization, the United Nations uh, are now saying that, uh, you know, everything is not a disorder of the individual. Everything doesn't need to be medicalized and pathologized, that we actually need new explanatory uh, narratives and new sort of paradigms that can help us to um, deal with uh, social suffering. And that requires uh, an expanded foci, expanded focus beyond the biomedical, beyond the psychological. I like to see mindfulness, um, and I think there are uh, uh, emerging trends in this direction, become a force uh, for social change, uh, become a civic force. And that requires then um, community formation. We have to put much more energy um, into uh, building community, uh, opening up uh, the avenues uh, for community dialogue around uh, the problems that we face, uh, and to look more critically and ask more challenging questions rather than uh, just kind of paying attention to the present moment. I think that uh, we have to go much more beyond just calming the mind. Uh, it's preliminary, it's necessary, uh, but if it's going to become a revolution, uh, it needs to get beyond its conservative uh, tendencies. It needs to really kind of call into question the social and political structures that we're living in and not be complicit in naturalizing the suffering that, um, in, in terms of enabling some of these uh, institutions that mindfulness has found itself in. So I think that requires new frameworks, um, whether we draw from sociology or we draw from anthropology or political science. Uh, we certainly need to expand this, the dis disciplinary scope through which we see mindfulness. And, and for, for the most part, it's been seen as a biomedical intervention. It's been seen as a clinical and psychological intervention. And those disciplines uh, are uh, traditionally very conservative. So I think by uh, expanding our diagnostic models um, beyond the therapeutic, that allows us then to uh, open up uh, new sorts of collective programs, new sorts of pedagogies, which can then um, take into account uh, the, the entangled nature of suffering uh, and see how it's entangled personally and collectively. And that requires uh, a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity uh, that uh, uh, people on the, uh, on the, on the edges are, are, are starting to do that. We could see that um, there was a recent article that came out in Transformation by the people in the um, Mindfulness for Social Change Network, uh, which started in the United Kingdom. And they chronicled and had a nice inventory of some of the, I would say, more social or civic-oriented mindfulness programs that are being experimented with, uh, primarily in the United Kingdom, actually. So I, I think we can revolutionize mindfulness and... Um, turn it into a force that uh, is uh, kind of uh, maybe resembles in some ways uh, liberation theology in terms of how we can uh, uh, marry together a spiritual practice with progressive and radical action. And again, that really takes uh, a new uh, vision, uh, a new vision which 
uh, takes into account uh, the shared vulnerabilities that we all have, and we all experience suffering, but we experience it differentially. It's not equal, um, and we need to kind of uh, see how mindfulness has been uh, primarily uh, uh, something for upper middle class uh, elites. Uh, a form of white privilege has been uh, something that's been uh, entangled with the mindfulness movement, and that that well, to disentangle that require a whole different sort of approach that cannot ignore, cannot bypass uh, the interrogation of power and systems. And that requires, again, uh, uh, new forms, new pedagogies. Uh, the eight-week uh, standardized program is not cast in stone. And so there are all different ways that we can approach it that open it up uh, to these more uh, civic uh, and collective and social uh, movements towards a more social mindfulness movement. Well, Ron, I'm pretty sure you're going to have your hands full with this book uh, for the foreseeable future. But once things quiet down a little bit, do you have any projects that you would like to work on? I actually want to get back um, to my own podcast, uh, The Mindful Cranks. I have kind of a long queue of people uh, that uh, I want to interview. So uh, I think that'll be my, uh, my first priority in the fall. Well, Ron, I'd like to thank you again for coming on the podcast to discuss your book, Make Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality, published by Repeater Books. Okay, thank you, Alex. Thank, thank you for having me. You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other New Books and Buddhist Studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flower by Para Furcuva.